Hello and welcome to Killing Time, a military history podcast for non-military listeners about battles and conflicts that change the course of history. September 1914. The Marne is a river in France, an eastern tributary of the Seine, in the area east and southeast of Paris. It's 514 kilometers long, starting in the Long Plateau east of Paris, a high regional plateau named after its principal city of Langres. The river runs generally north, then bends west between Saint-Dizier and Chalon-en-Champagne, joining the Seine at Charenton, just upstream from Paris. For much of its course, it unravels and unfolds idyllic pastoral scenes that inspired French Impressionist painters such as Paul Cézanne and Camille Pissarro, to name only two of many. It's an old and lazy river that meanders in serpentine fashion, forming great bends and curves that, if uncoiled and straightened out, would make the river much longer on a map than it appears. Today you can take a sightseeing barge trip on the river. Many do, and take beautiful photographs of the scenery of the incomparable French countryside as they glide along its mirror-like surface. It's here, though, along the banks of this tranquil river, in the fields and hills, pastures and forests, and in the towns nearby, that was fought one of the largest and most decisive battles in all of history, at the outset of the First World War. It was here that France faced the concentrated might of what I believe is one of the greatest armies ever assembled in modern history, the German Wehrmacht of 1914. The Marne River, as I mentioned, is a tributary of the much larger Seine River, which, as everybody who's ever been to Paris knows, divides the French capital city just about in half. Its proximal terminus enters the Seine at Charenton-le-Pont, a suburban community of Paris in its southeastern quarter, sort of the four or five o'clock position if Paris were a clock face. The point being, of course, that this battle was fought on the fringes, the outskirts of the French capital, and for all the marbles. In the moment of truth, in five days of intense combat in September 1914, the French and a tiny British contingent suffered some 87,000 casualties. The Germans lost some 67,000, making a grand total of over 150,000 dead, wounded, or missing 
in five days. France was saved and enabled to continue the war only by its victory on the Marne. Had it lost the battle and Paris, as she did in 1940, it's difficult to imagine that France could have continued the war to victory as she did four long, bloody years later, in November 1918. And the world might be a very different place than it is today. This is the story of some of France's greatest military heroes, whose names today are practically unknown outside of their own country, and largely forgotten even within it. Joseph Papajoff, Charles Galliani, Ferdinand Foch, and others. It's also the story of victory snatched from the yawning jaws of defeat at the last moment. It's a story of struggle, heroism, and death. Above all, it's the story of the common French soldier whose stoic courage and resilience in the face of disaster evoked admiration even, and perhaps foremost, from the German generals who attempted to defeat them. Now, as I always do, we'll start by putting this battle, this mammoth battle, in context. The Marne was actually the culminating battle of a rapid, month-long campaign, which began shortly after the German declaration of war on France on August 3, 1914, at the outset of the First World War. That war was the first general European war since the defeat of Napoleon at Waterloo 99 years earlier, in 1815. In the meantime, the European continent had been disturbed by a couple of relatively quick wars between two or three of the great powers of Europe, but it remained otherwise free of serious conflict. One of the relatively brief wars had been a showdown between France and Prussia in 1870 and 1871, in which Prussia and its German allies had won an upset victory over France, resulting in the unification of the many independent German states under the domination of Prussia, with its capital in Berlin. France had been compelled to accept a humiliating defeat, forced to witness the proclamation of the German Empire in the Versailles Palace, cede its two easternmost provinces of Alsace and Lorraine to Germany, and pay a huge financial indemnity. The defeat in the Franco-Prussian War, and especially the loss of Alsace and Lorraine, kindled a deep and perpetual enmity for Germany among French political and military leaders with an unspoken vow to someday liberate them and return them to France. Yet, as the years went by, the raw sting of defeat slowly ebbed. The Third Republic, proclaimed after the overthrow of the Bonaparte monarchy of Emperor Napoleon III, resulting from defeat in the war, ushered in an era known as La Belle Epoque, that drowned French anger and sadness in an outpouring of cultural achievement that had only Vienna and London as rivals in the year between 1871 and 1914. The Belle Epoque was named in retrospect when it was contrasted with the horrors of World War I. This was the era of Impressionism in art, the preeminence of French luxury manufacturing and fashion, architecture, 
the Paris Exposition of 1889 that saw the construction of the Eiffel Tower, and so forth. It was a period characterized by optimism, peace, economic prosperity, and technological, scientific, and cultural innovation. Many masterpieces of literature, music, theater, and visual art gained recognition. French music, by native and émigré composers, flourished as never before, or perhaps since, with such famous names as Igor Stravinsky, Eric Satie, Claude Debussy, Lili Boulanger, Jules Massenet, César Franck, Camille Saint-Saëns, Gabriel Fauré and his pupil Maurice Ravel, all working in Paris at that time. The enmity between France and Germany, however, never entirely died during this period. German leaders, beginning with Bismarck and continuing with later chancellors, generals, and above all, the German Kaiser Wilhelm II, considered France as its perpetual chief enemy, despite the fact that in the same period, German population and economic growth virtually assured that it could, and probably would, be able to defeat and overwhelm any French attempt to reverse the verdict of 1871 by military means. French leaders came to the same conclusion, and had no choice but to bide their time and hope that some favorable circumstance would eventually turn up. As the 19th century came to an end, French desire to restore the lost provinces to the Republic was superseded by an often bullying and intimidating German foreign policy with periodic war scares about every decade. French military and political leaders had to contend with what another war and another defeat by Germany might mean to France. Loss of its colonial empire, loss of more territory in Europe and population, loss of its own self-confidence and prestige, essentially reducing an historic, proud nation to a second-rate power, subservient to Germany. Eventually, however, an opportunity did arise. The aggressive policies of the German imperial government, and, more importantly, the rivalry between Russia and Austria-Hungary, Germany's most important ally, gradually persuaded Russia to seek an alliance with France to guard against an Austro-German attack. This followed a decade of gradually escalating French financial investment in Russia during the 1880s and 1890s. As is so often the case, diplomacy followed the money, to the end that Russia eventually concluded a mutual military alliance with France, aimed primarily against Germany in 1894. That alliance would remain intact until 1917. The causes and origins of the First World War have been the subject of innumerable books and lectures, but Franco-German enmity and fear was one of the preeminent reasons for the war. The military establishments on both sides of the Rhine had concluded that in any general European war, the other country posed the most immediate, direct threat to its survival. All other military considerations were subordinated to the supreme task of overcoming an attack by the other. These conclusions, in turn, led to two strategies, both of which failed spectacularly when the war came. And now I'm going to talk about the two plans, and I'm going to start with the French plan. 
On the French side, the military staff had evolved a strategy to defeat Germany known as Plan 17, because it was the 17th plan developed by the French general staff since the defeat of 1871. Until 1912, French military thinking was defensive in nature. France had, since the time of Louis XIV, protected its eastern frontier with a remarkable system of daunting fortresses, for example, at Verdun, Longry, Epinal, and Belfort. These massive fortresses had existed in one form or another for centuries, but had been redesigned and constructed under the direction of the French general Serre de Riviere starting in 1874. Earlier French planning had conceived of a largely defensive strategy that anticipated attack by a significantly larger German army based along the Rhine and advancing west through Alsace and Lorraine into the heart of France. The system of fortresses, supplemented by small ones in the gaps between them, would slow the German attack to a crawl and exact fearsome casualties as the German army laid siege to them. A mobile French army grouped behind and around the fortress system could counterattack once the German army had been pulverized in this manner and, hopefully, defeat and expel it from France, retaking the lost provinces in the bargain. It's not clear how much French intelligence or its high command knew about German war plans before the outbreak of hostilities, but by the advent of the 20th century, it occurred to the French. That Germany, with its significantly larger army, might attempt to get around the barrier created along the Franco German border by focusing the point of its attack beyond the left flank, the northernmost point of the border, which meant passing through neutral Luxembourg andor Belgium. By 1912, Joffre had become the French chief of staff. And had decided to radically revise French defensive thinking with a more aggressive offensive strategy that he and like minded French military thinkers believed was more in keeping with historic French military doctrine. French defeat in 1870 had contributed to a general feeling of military inferiority that was in contrast to centuries of French military dominance in Europe under the Bourbon monarchy and Napoleon. It was high time to restore morale by doctrines emphasizing attack and overwhelming the enemy by instilling a sense of zeal, or elan, as the French called it, in the French general staff and officer corps. Plan 17 would not merely rely on France's stout defensive system. Rather, the French army would burst out on the Germans from behind the fortress wall with all its might and elan. Concentrating the bulk of French infantry, cavalry, and artillery in an all out attack. Joffre spent much time in the pre war period in calculating this offensive mentality among his generals, who for the most part enthusiastically supported and helped promote this spirit throughout the army. Joffre also redoubled logistical plans and resources to enable the French army to mobilize faster. And speed to the designated marshalling areas along the front to unleash the deadly onslaught against the Germans as quickly as possible before their army was fully mobilized and transported to the Rhine. 
A couple of other significant aspects of Joffre's offensive Plan 17 that proved quite detrimental to the French cause once war broke out. The first was that only a very small part of the French army was arrayed across the northern frontier with Belgium. It was hoped that this would be augmented by the British, who might send an expeditionary army to France in the event of war, but this was wishful thinking. True to British imperial war doctrine since Napoleonic times, Britain's army was tiny compared to the continental powers and much of it scattered across a vast overseas empire. In the decisive period, Britain's expeditionary force, if it were sent, would amount to only a single field army of six infantry divisions and several cavalry brigades, or two corps of about a hundred thousand men. Joffre was unconcerned with this apparent weakness because he and his staff underestimated the size of the German army. This miscalculation was due to the fact that, for the first time in modern warfare, as we'll see when we get to the German war plans, the German army would incorporate its reserve infantry into its frontline active service troops. Joffre considered the possibility that the Germans might do what he had contemplated. Passing through Luxembourg and Belgium, but if they did, the incursion would be very limited and close to the eastern part of the frontier, so as to avoid becoming separated from the main army. Accordingly, Joffre planned to station two smaller field armies in the vicinity that he felt, combined with a possible British force, would be more than sufficient and allow him to concentrate the bulk of his forces on the explosive blast through to the Rhine. The second flaw of Plan 17 was its emphasis, for the most part, on a war of speed, maneuver, and movement, as opposed to the static, stationary, defensive posture contemplated by earlier plans. Accordingly, decisions were made about weapons systems that proved quite harmful to France, at least in the short term. Artillery was a good example. France invested little in heavy, large-caliber cannon in favor of a quick-firing mobile piece known as the Soixante Quinze or Seventy Fives, for the caliber of the gun in millimeters. While these guns would prove quite deadly under certain circumstances, they would not provide the awe-inspiring morale devastation of German heavy artillery, nor the immense casualties it would produce. Overall, however, the French army was extremely well equipped and motivated. Its colonial forces had combat experience, and at the outbreak of war, would be transferred from the vast French territories in North Africa, across the Mediterranean to the front. Finally, by 1914, and with the maturing of the Franco-Russian alliance, French doctrine incorporated the strong belief that even if the battle along the Rhine was not successful in itself, In defeating the Germans, it would force Germany to commit such significant parts of their overall forces that Russia, attacking with a gigantic army from the east, would crush resistance there, capture Berlin, and end the war. To that end, the French government had steered major loans to the Russian government to enable it to double-track its rail lines from the interior to the German border, speeding the arrival of a doomsday force of over a million Russian troops to engage the Germans in Prussia. At the same time, France was fighting the Germans in a titanic battle of their own, like the two arms of a giant nutcracker. 
France and Russia would squeeze and crush the German nut between them. Now let's talk about the German plan. Germany's pre-war plan arose from the very dilemma that France and Russia's alliance created, the two-front war, and what to do about it. After Russia drifted out of the German alliance system and into the enemy camp, the possibility of a simultaneous attack from west and east posed a nightmare scenario for the vaunted German general staff. Germany was confident that it could indeed overwhelm France in single combat. After all, Prussia had defeated France in 1870 when its resources and economy were inferior. By 1900, Germany was by far the more powerful of the two and was as fiercely proud of its military tradition as the French. The trouble was what to do about Russia. In 1903, the chief of the German general staff, Alfred von Schlieffen, conceived of a plan to deal with Germany's anticipated dilemma. The plan would basically concentrate 90% of Germany's military strength against France in the opening six weeks of the war, with the goal a knockout super-envelopment of the French army. Meanwhile, a single field army would guard the back door for the much slower mobilizing Russian army during the six-week war with France at which time the victorious Western army could be shipped rapidly across Germany to contend with the anticipated Eastern invasion. The von Schlieffen plan was modified several times after its initial iteration in 1903 until the time of its launch on August 1, 1914, but the gist of the plan remained the same. German field armies would mass along the Rhine and the Belgian border, with the bulk of their numbers and strength in the north, or right wing. This would be the maneuvering wing, while the left, or southern wing, along the Rhine, would remain static or even retreat if the French should attack there, holding the French army in place, while the much more numerous and heavier right wing swung like a giant scythe from Belgium, down into northern France, sweeping the weak and scattered Franco-British forces before it. Paris would be enveloped since an entire field army would actually march past it to the west. The French army would then be the nut in the nutcracker as it was crushed between closing left and right wings of the German army. As we'll see, both plans had serious flaws that would be exposed in the days and weeks before the outbreak of the war on August 3rd and the decisive battle of the Marne a month later. Yet of the two plans, the first to be exposed as unworkable was Plan 17. Its offensive philosophy, on a tactical basis, failed to take into account modern industrialized weaponry, leading to extremely limited territorial gains as against enormous casualties. This failure was not at all unique to the French. Virtually all the armies of the great powers in 1914 encountered the same results. In fact, No other year of the First World War could match the sheer bloodiness and death of the first one, which only lasted five months. Yet the greater failure of the offensive strategy was that it bled French military resources white, when all France really needed to do on the grand strategic level was to hang on and occupy 90% of Germany's military power while Russia invaded from the east. 
France was not required to achieve operational or strategic victory in the West merely to survive the onslaught. Finally, it was probably unrealistic to believe that France could achieve a decisive result in one massive roll of the dice against an enemy that had significantly greater manpower and resources than did France. The folly of the German plan took longer to manifest, but in the long run doomed Germany's potential for victory almost from the start. First and foremost, the decision to invade Belgium was a disastrous political mistake because it gave the British government the excuse it needed to intervene in the conflict on the side of the French. It's doubtful whether the British cabinet, itself deeply divided, could have persuaded the British parliament to declare war on Germany at the outbreak of the war until and unless the territory of Belgium were violated and which, by treaty, Britain was bound to uphold. While Britain's military contribution in the early going of the war was extremely small, it was important, and as the war went on, Britain emerged as the most formidable of all Germany's enemies. The second flaw in the Schlieffen Plan was that it gravely miscalculated the arrival of Russian forces in the east. While six weeks of Russian mobilization and transportation of its army to the Prussian border might have been accurate in 1903 or 1905, it was not accurate in 1914, with far more numerous and advanced rail connections right up to the German border. In fact, two massive Russian armies would appear and begin an invasion of East Prussia bound for Berlin within two weeks of the declaration of war. This made the 90-10 division of power untenable and required weakening of the forces in the West to deal with the Russian onslaught in the East. By the way, the Battle of Tannenberg, in which the Germans miraculously thwarted this invasion, was our very first podcast in this series, and you can hear that story for yourself if you haven't already. Finally, the Schlieffen Plan was a rigid plan that, once engaged, left no room for error. No plan B should anything go wrong, and of course, things would go wrong. For example, Belgium would not passively lay down its arms and watch millions of Germans march through their territory without resistance. In fact, Belgium fought desperately and slowed the German advance, as well as making clear to the French high command the scale and breadth of the forces being arrayed to the north against them in the nick of time. Now, we, before we begin um, discussing what happened, uh, it's very important to um, know a little bit about the commanders involved in this massive campaign and battle. So, um, let's talk about them. Um, and, and I should say, the two colossal armies facing one another, the French and German, each numbering in the millions, had a large and complex command structure leading to the very top. And we haven't got the time to give adequate attention to most of them in this story, so I'm going to confine myself to a few of the most important and decisive commanders whose actions had a major impact on the outcome of the war. And we'll begin on the German side with Helmuth von Molke. Most of you know, uh, who've listened to earlier podcasts, 
Gauss, particularly the Battle of Königgratz, will recall my admiration for Helmuth von Molke, the chief of staff of the Prussian army of King William I, and my opinion that he was the greatest military commander in Europe between Napoleon and the First World War. The German army was commanded by his nephew, known as Molke the Younger, to military historians. And while this Helmuth von Molke was not without talent, he was by no means comparable in genius or courage to his by then late uncle. In the Franco-Prussian War, Moltke had served with the 7th Grenadier Regiment and was cited for personal bravery. He'd gone to the War Academy after the war and was then appointed to the General Staff in 1880. In 1891, after the death of his uncle, the younger Moltke became a personal military advisor to the new German Emperor, William II, his aide-de-camp. He received continued promotions until 1906, Upon the retirement of von Schlieffen, he was appointed chief of staff. Molke's personality has been the subject of numerous opinions and books. Most agree that he was basically an introverted, pessimistic individual. He had expressed on numerous occasions before the war his doubts about Germany's overall diplomatic and geopolitical strategic situation. He felt that Germany's diplomatic isolation and the rising power of Russia would make his country's position hopeless in time. For that reason, he urged an early preventative war with France and Russia, therefore, before it was too late. And in this way, he contributed to the hair-trigger climate of fear that prevailed in the last years before the war. As a military planner and thinker, he was solid enough, but he lacked nerve. Mulkey had suffered a stroke before the outbreak of the war in 1914, and was, in any event, one of the oldest of the supreme commanders of the great powers at the outbreak of the war at 66 years of age. Yet he was younger than any of his three main field uh, army generals. He would die in 1916 in Berlin after being cashiered by the Kaiser after the Marne. In the critical days of the battle, it appears he had a complete nervous or mental breakdown, issuing no orders coordinating the three German field armies involved in the battle. On balance, Moltke proved to be a weakness to the German cause. The three main commanders of the hammer that was the German right wing were three generals of the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd German field armies, Alexander von Kluck, Karl von Bülow, and Max von Hausen, all with very different personalities. The relationship between von Kluck and von Bülow was poor and would contribute to defeat on the Marne, so it's particularly important to take just a moment to describe these gentlemen. Alexander von Kluck's first army was the largest field army in the entire German army, numbering some 200,000 troops and 14 divisions which is significantly larger than the entire British Expeditionary Force, that one field army alone. He was a veteran of both the Austro-Prussian War of 1866 and the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. By 1906, he was promoted to general rank, and by 1913, inspector general. In 1914, he was also an older general, 68 years old. His key personality characteristics were his aggressiveness and impatience. He's described by contemporaries as overbearing, supremely confident, abrasive, and ruthless. 
he correctly understood that his army, on the most extreme right wing of the right wing, was the most important and decisive field army, and that its command had fallen to him as the most important and best general in the German army. Karl von Bülow was in some ways the opposite. He came from a long line of Prussian military commanders, with both his father and grandfather having served as generals. Cautious and plodding, von Bülow, at 70 years of age, was even older than Kluck or Molke. He too had a distinguished career beginning in the Austro-Prussian and then Franco-Prussian wars. He achieved general rank in 1897 and was actually given supervisory command over von Kluck and von Hausen early in the campaign between August 9th and the 17th by Molke. He was the most senior general on the right wing, and his second army was the second largest field army of three, sandwiched between the first and the third. Max von Hausen was about the same age as von Bülow at 70. He was a Saxon and commanded the pivotal third army that sort of acted as a hinge between the right and left wings of the German army. In his early career, he had actually served against Prussia in the Austro-Prussian War of 1866 because Saxony had sided with Austria in that war. A teacher at the German Military Academy in Berlin, he had joined the German General Staff in 1892. He was Chief of the Saxon General Staff and Minister of War in Saxony until 1914, when he was given command. He seems not to have had the same fractious relationship with von Bülow as enjoyed by Kluck, and hemmed in between Bülow and the German left wing, had much less opportunity for independent maneuver. So we have three rather elderly generals, rich in personal military experience, commanded by von Molke, he of the famous name. And then we have the rest of the German army, including the one field army in the east, that have little significance to this battle except in the opening days when the German left wing stoutly rebuffed the French attack into the lost provinces. Now let me talk a little bit about the French commanders. And let me start with Joseph Joffre. Supreme commander on the French side was General Joseph Joffre. At 62 years of age in 1914, he was a comparative youngster to the aged German generals. He was the son of wine growers in the eastern Pyrenees Mountains near Spain, one of 11 children. At 18, he went to Paris and entered the French École Polytechnique, intending to become an engineering officer, but became caught up in the Franco-Prussian War. As a cadet, he built barricades in Paris to defend it after the defeat at Sedan. After the war, he completed his military education and entered into France's colonial army in the Far East, including Formosa and Indochina and Africa, including Madagascar and North Africa. 
By 1900, at the age of 48, he was a seasoned officer and had reached the rank of brigadier general. By 1910, he was appointed chief of the general staff. A large man in height and girth with a round, jolly-appearing face beneath his round, capy hat. This Jovian appearance in photographs that helped gain him the affectionate moniker Papa was deceptive. In truth, he was a man of few words, in conversation, reserved and cool, a listener and observer before saying anything. He had a disturbing habit of dropping into the headquarters of his subordinate generals, hearing the news, looking at the maps, and then departing by car without saying a word if he thought all was proceeding well. Joffre was no aristocrat and not of the conservative Catholic caste that defined much of France's officer class at that time, with many secret monarchists hostile to the Republic. By contrast, Joffre was an agnostic, religiously, and a firm Republican, although he detested political meddling in military matters, which he believed had been one of the major causes of France's defeat in 1870. The one word in quality that is always applied to him is calm, the opposite of Molke. Joff rarely showed any disquiet or anxiety, with one exception, the British, no matter what the situation or provocation. He never lost his head, although he could display cold rage at times when provoked. But there would be no loss of nerve or mental or physical breakdowns with him, and he had many opportunities to have had one in the weeks leading up to the Marne. Joffre employed the famous Grand Prix winner and race car driver Georges Boyot as his personal driver. Joffre and Boyot racing around the front to his various commander's headquarters in the field at the front contrasted with Mulkey, who remained rigidly at his headquarters in the rear at all times. Joffre also employed an excellent chef and made it a point no matter what to have a fine lunch every day to clear his mind before renewing his exertions. Joff was a cold calculator, a mathematician from the École Polytechnique, after all, and a supreme logistician in the estimation of his colleagues. He was unsentimental and ruthless in cashiering three field army commanders, ten corps commanders, and thirty-eight divisional commanders shortly after the war began for incompetence, lack of zeal, failure to properly dispose and maneuver their forces, and so forth. He had a good eye for talent also, replacing many mediocre commanders whose lack of talent or willpower had revealed themselves with powerhouses like Ferdinand Foch and Franchet Desperet, Philippe Pétain and Robert Nivelle, who went on, for the most part, to greater glory. Speaking of key commanders for the Battle of the Marne, there are several others who deserve mention. Charles Lanzarat was the commander of the French 5th Army, the one on the far left of the front, who ended up having the unenviable task of facing von Kluck and having to interact with the British commander of the BEF, Sir John French. Very confusing, by the way, the British commander's last name being French, and uh, hopefully we'll try and keep that clear as we go along. But Lanzarac was born in the French West Indies and had a long history in the French colonial service. He was a protégé of Joffre during his career and was a famous professor and lecturer on military thought at the French Military Academy of Saint-Cyr. 
which is not where Joff went, you may remember. Much more cautious and defensive than Joff, or the all-out attack school of thought championed by Ferdinand Foch, he was aghast when shown the details of Plan 17 for the first time in May 1914. Believing it very likely that the Germans would mount a much larger and wider invasion of Belgium than a single French field army would be capable of stopping. His constant warnings during the weeks leading up to the Battle of the Marne would irritate Joffre, but may have been instrumental in saving the day, as we'll see. Joseph Galliani had been Lanzarote's predecessor as commander of the Fifth Army. A career soldier from Corsica and of Italian heritage, he had fought in the Franco-Prussian War at the disastrous defeat at Sedan and had been captured as a prisoner. While awaiting the end of the war, Galliani learned the German language and spoke English, French, Italian, and German. He too shared the skepticism of the Fausse Chapelle, and that's a French word meaning chapel, and uh, that was used to define the, define the various schools of thought in the uh, military academy in France. Uh, he, he shared the skepticism of the uh, all-out attack school and suspected that the German invasion of Belgium on their way into northern France might be the focal point of attack. He felt that if so, the Fifth Army was too small and weak to move forward into Belgium to provide assistance to its army there, and that the French border city of Mauberge should be much more heavily fortified. Galliani had completed a distinguished career by 1914 and actually turned down the honor of being named Chief of Staff on the ground of his age and instead supported his protege, Joffre, who was duly appointed. In our story, Galliani was recalled from retirement and appointed military governor of Paris. His dominant personality and prestige awed even Joff, who had to contend with his audacious vision for the defense of the capital that contributed to the victory on the Marne. talk a little bit about the weapons because the First World War is a, it sees more than anything else a, a, a total revolution, not just in weapons, but in their use and the doctrine uh, uh, military doctrine that um, had to go with these, these new weapons uh, which was largely disregarded by the general staffs of almost all of the great powers uh, at the outset of the war uh, to their great cost. As you can see, most of the French and German high command were in their late 60s and even their 70s, but most importantly, their military experience and thinking reflected the two great wars of the mid-19th century, the Austro-Prussian War of 1866 and the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. In both these wars, there was a decisive single battle that decided the war in the early weeks of the campaign. In 1866, it was Königgratz. In 1870, it was Sedan. After these battles, the rest of the war was pretty much a foregone conclusion. These wars and the cloistered general staffs of both countries, with their schools of thought, or chapelles as the French called them, 
believed that this war too would be decided quickly and decisively and devised their plans accordingly. Both sides bet the ranch on risky, all-out attacks that if they failed might spell utter defeat for their country. But the general staffs, particularly the Allied staff, missed the impact that the weapons revolution of the 1890s, long after these two mid-century wars, would have on tactics and operations. The Germans were more open to new weapons technology, believing that in large part their victory over the Austrians in 1866 had been due to their use of a new weapon, the breech-loading rifle or needle gun. But it was the French and the British who engineered the two new weapons that would spew death on the battlefield on a scale unbelievable to the world. The first and most familiar weapon came into being thanks to an American inventor, Hiram Maxim, in 1883. It was the water-cooled, recoil-operated Maxim gun, the first automatic weapon and the father of the machine gun. This weapon was capable of firing 600 rounds per minute, using energy from recoil to eject each spent cartridge and insert the next one in lieu of a hand-operated mechanism. This made it vastly more efficient and less labor-intensive than previous rapid-firing guns such as the Milatreuse, Gatling, Gardner, or Nordenfeldt that relied on actual mechanical cranking. It also decreased the gas buildup in the barrel, allowing the gun to fire more bullets over an extended period of time without overheating the barrel. The Maxim gun design required water cooling, giving it the ability to maintain its rate of fire for far longer than air-cooled guns. By 1897, the Maxim Gun Company, formed by Hiram Maxim, was acquired and made part of the famous British Vickers brand, becoming Vickers & Sons and Maxim. The French Hotchkiss firm developed their own machine gun in 1909, and virtually all the great powers of Europe and the United States had incorporated machine guns into their standard arsenal of infantry weapons by 1914, although in varying degrees and varying numbers. Likewise, the breech-loaded rifle had evolved since the famous needle guns, or chaspo, of the earlier wars. Now the standard infantry weapon was a bolt-action rifle, with a magazine with at least five rounds. The firepower of massed riflemen with Mauser, or Enfield, or Remington rifles at ranges of 400 meters was a truly awesome thing to behold. But the biggest revolution, and the one where the disparity between the Allied and Austro-German armies was the greatest, was artillery. Artillery would turn out to be the greatest killing weapon of the First World War, more than machine guns, gas, rifles, or anything else. As the author John Mosier in his book The Myth of the Great War points out, quote, When the war began, the Germans deployed weapons the Allies did not possess, weapons they had refused to build, and weapons they believed could not be built. Yet it was the French who had mastered the problem of the recoil of artillery pieces that had been a standard problem since the invention of the cannon. Simply put, artillery recoil meant the backward force generated by the explosion within the gun barrel. The force of expelling a cannonball, or later a shell, resulted 
as Sir Isaac Newton had noted, in an equal and opposite reaction, propelling the artillery piece backward when fired. This meant that before 1898, the gun carriage and mounting of all cannon had to be heavily reinforced to absorb the force of the blast, making them incredibly heavy. Furthermore, artillery was inaccurate. Again, as Mosier points out, quote, at 6,000 meters, a deviation of even one degree in repositioning would mean that the second shell would land nearly 200 meters from the first. Even at half that range, the deviation would be 100 meters. At closer distances, the gunners would be picked off by the opposing infantry. All this was a function of the recoil problem, the repositioning of the guns and refiring them. In 1897, French engineers used hydraulics to solve the problem. The gun barrel slid along a trough, compressing a cylinder filled with air and oil that absorbed the blast. No recoil. No repositioning. Consistent, accurate fire with far lighter weapons. This ushered in the era of the Soissons-Quinze, the French 75s. But there they stopped. The Germans and the Austrians, on the other hand, took the game to a new level, building recoilless heavy weapons by the hundreds. They too had their light 77s, but it was the medium and heavy howitzers that could propel massive shells high into the air and down on military targets, hiding behind ridges and hills or any other obstacles that set them apart. Massive payloads of high explosive would also rain down on the fortresses constructed on the invasion route by Belgium, blowing them to smithereens in days. The French 75s, by contrast, had a defect in this regard. They could only be elevated to 16 degrees, meaning no ability for plunging fire, and a complete inability to hit anything concealed behind obstacles, whether natural or man-made. Further, these guns had to be fired more or less directly, meaning the gun and gunners were directly exposed to enemy fire. The German weapons, meanwhile, took advantage of indirect fire from behind safe barricades or hills, unseen and unmolested, and directed by forward observers. The Austrians had developed a 305mm howitzer that was so large it had to be transported by three heavy trucks, but could be assembled in four hours and shot an astonishing payload of 37 kilograms of high explosives out to distances of 12,000 meters. In 1914, the six army groups of France deployed about 300 heavy weapons, but all of them were the old recoil style that had to be repositioned with each firing. By contrast, the Germans would deploy 848 Krupp-manufactured heavy weapons, all of them modern long recoil weapons, and a full quarter of them were the 210mm howitzer. This also did not count the Austrian weapons manufactured by the Skoda Works in Bohemia that the Germans would borrow and take with them into Belgium. Austrian arms included a 75 and 100 millimeter howitzer as well. 
Finally, while the Austrians and Germans designed and built weapons of 105, 150, 210 millimeters, all capable of being moved and positioned quickly, they incorporated firepower into their military doctrine. While the French, and the British for that matter, believed that the ultimate key to victory lay with the bayonet and the willpower of the individual soldier to close with the enemy, German doctrine held that, quote, in combination with the artillery, the infantry defeats the opponent. The attack consists of carrying forward fire against the enemy, if necessary, up to the closest range. Again, assaults with bayonets were contrary to German doctrine and to be avoided. Rather, combined arms fire with artillery and rifles would defeat the most determined enemy. Mosier estimated that while the German army was about the same size as the French, in firepower it had an advantage of somewhere between 4 to 1 and 12 to 1. And it was this advantage that allowed von Molke and Kaiser Wilhelm to believe that they could win a quick and decisive victory in 1914. Otherwise, it's difficult to understand how or why Germany was sufficiently confident to declare war on both Russia and France in August 1914, or believe it had much of a chance of winning such a war. It was German firepower and doctrine that gave hope to Molke and the Kaiser, and the belief that the war would be over quickly before the immense resources of these two powers could be brought to bear, let alone those of the British Empire. They had better, because Germany's diplomatic and geopolitical situation was greatly inferior to that of France at the outbreak of the war. France had two great power allies that were even stronger than she was, Russia and Britain. On the other hand, Germany had two allies that were both significantly weaker than her and would drain resources, Austria-Hungary and Italy. As it turned out, Italy dropped out of the alliance and then turned on the Austro-German allies within a year, leaving Germany with Bulgaria and Turkey as allies instead. A quick knockout uh, in a few weeks or a couple of months at the most was about the best Germany could hope for in 1914. France, on the other hand, could just survive and wait. So let's talk about the campaign now. The armies of France and Germany were summoned to arms on August the 3rd, 1914, with proclamations and much enthusiasm. Both countries' mobilizations went off like clockwork, vindicating the intricate, detailed planning in the years leading up to the war. Trains bulging with soldiers pulled out of stations in small towns and large cities. The French fleet guarded convoys of colonial troops from North Africa across the Mediterranean to Toulon and Marseille, where they too disembarked. The French were immensely heartened by the German ultimatum to Belgium, followed by invasion, which in turn brought an ultimatum to Germany from Britain and then a declaration of war at 11 o'clock p.m. on August the 4th. Belgium had a field army 
of about 115,000. That it too mobilized once German units crossed its frontiers, pulling them into its interior to await presumed French reinforcements. The significant features of Belgium to our story are the River Meuse and two massive fortress systems centered on Liège and Namur, both of which are located on the Meuse. The Meuse is just west of the Belgian-German frontier and flows in a more or less north-south direction until it gets to Liège, where it bends in a more southwesterly direction to Namur. At Namur, it takes a hard southerly turn again, going almost due south into France. The Meuse is not a small river, and Liège was, and still is, one of Belgium's largest cities. The fortress system in Liège was also not small, one of the most formidable and thought to be either impregnable or of such size and strength that it could and would slow down an invading army for months. It was comprised of twelve forts of varying sizes, made not of masonry but reinforced concrete, finished in 1891. They formed a 52-kilometer perimeter around the city and were also heavily armed with turrets of 57, 120, 150, and 210-millimeter guns. To this was added a garrison within the fortified area of some 24,000 infantry, 500 cavalry, 72 field guns, and 30 machine guns. Once you'd managed to break through that defensive system, you would have another similar system at Namur, down the river. Furthermore, in addition to the Belgian field army, the British expeditionary army would begin moving into position near Mons, and the French 5th Army, under Lanzarac, would also move up the Meuse to confront whatever was coming across from Germany. Joff and his staff actually hoped that the Germans would send a large force into Belgium, not only because it would bring the British into the war, but because it would necessarily weaken the area of the lost provinces around Metz, Nancy, and Strasbourg, where the French intended to concentrate their attack. The German army in the west was actually divided into seven field armies, or army groups. They were numbered one through seven, going from north to south with, with as we've seen, von Kluck, Bülow, and Hauser, commanding the first, second, and third armies, respectively, on the right wing. The French, on the opposite side, initially had five field armies, numbered one through five, from south to north. Again, as we've already discussed, the one and only field army located opposite the Belgian border, around Sedan and Charleville, was the 5th, commanded by Lanzarote. The BEF, under Sir John French, was ferried across the English Channel and settled into the left of Lanzarote's army, around Mauberge. Remember the fortress that Foch thought should be more, more fortified. Half the boredom with Belgium lay essentially unguarded. There was no field army to the west of the BEF. On August 6th, von Bülow's second army reached Liège, at which point the Belgian commander, Le Mans, decided to withdraw the infantry garrison, a tragic error. 
so as not to lose it to the Germans, retreating inward to join the rest of the Belgian army. This left the forts with no infantry defense at all, merely able to fire their guns at the arriving gray tide. Indeed, on the very next day, German infantry units penetrated between the forts and the city of Liège itself was captured and occupied. On August 8th, German guns were in place and opened up on Fort Barchon, located at the 2 o'clock position on the perimeter. After pounding the fort with plunging fire, it surrendered at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. This deprived the forts on either side of it of covering fire, and one by one, the forts were taken. On August 10th, the really big guns, including a 420-millimeter howitzer, arrived. By August 13th, it was over, with very few casualties taken by the Germans. Liège had not significantly slowed the rapidly growing juggernaut. Namur was next, and only lasted five days, with the German dress rehearsal at Liège having taught them the most efficient methods to reduce and destroy what proved to be little more than paper obstacles. So far, the immense firepower of the Wehrmacht was working as expected. By August 23rd, the Meuse was crossed with no sign of the BEF or the French. Von Kluck, marching at speed in a wide arc to the north of Bulow, drove the repeating Belgians before him, taking Brussels on August 20th. By August 23rd, he was approaching Mons and an encounter with the British, all the way on the left flank of the Allied line. At first, Joff and the High Command were misled by initial Belgian claims of success in fending off the Germans. By August 18th, however, there was nothing but silence from the north, as the Belgians were routed. Lanzarag was sure that his premonitions of a wide, flanking arc were being borne out every day with new evidence. Ever-increasing messages of anxiety and then mounting panic began to pour in from Lanzarag to headquarters. Meanwhile, the French had begun their own offensive on August 7th into Alsace, at the far opposite end of the line. After initial success, however, including the, taking the symbolic town of Mulhaus, the French were beaten back in German counterattacks and became bogged down. By August the 22nd, the French had been beaten back to their starting points and the Germans were developing their own offensive toward Nancy. At this point, Joffre ordered a major offensive by the 3rd and 4th armies right at the pivot point between the German left and right wings, between Arlon and Neufchâteau, engaging the German 4th and 5th armies. The two forces were of approximately equal size, 20 and 21 divisions, but the French 4th army contained the best troops France had to offer, including the colonial corps. Mosier describes the result of this attack. On August 22, 1914, the colonial infantry attacked just north of the small village of Rossignol and was basically annihilated by German artillery. 4,577 men were killed in one day's fighting. Essentially, there were no officers left. But then, with the usually accepted ratio of two wounded soldiers 
to every soldier killed in action, there were no colonial infantry left for them to command. Losses in the other units engaged were equally bad. Already terms like decimated and annihilated were beginning to take on their literal meaning. Here were France's best combat units, and in their first day of combat they simply ceased to exist. A few days later, at the other end of the line, the 13th and 22nd Alpine battalions, also elite units, lost half their men and both battalion commanders. There were places where German units were caught by 75s and massacred as well, as at Mangienne. The problem was that on the German side such massacres were the exception. The German army had 18,000 soldiers killed on the Western Front for the whole month. The French had at least 100,000 men killed and missing in August, and perhaps even more. Langerhock's army joined the offensive on the pivot point two days after it was begun in an area to the south and west of Namur. By August 23rd, the British were forced back at Mons by von Kluck, and Langerhock's army was thrown back out of Belgium at a battle around Charlois. On August 25th, the British were beaten so soundly at Le Cateau that they lost more casualties than Wellington had at Waterloo. By August 27th, there was panic at both the BEF and 5th Army headquarters as the looming disaster bore down on both armies. This period of time when French attacks all along the front were beaten off by the Germans, and while in the meantime the three German armies on the right wing swept through Belgium, is known as the Battle of the Frontiers in military histories of this war. In effect, the Battle of the Frontiers was the attempt by Joffre and his commanders to execute Plan 17. When it appears that the French were taking the initiative and bringing the war to the Germans. By August 24th, Joffre realized that Plan 17 had failed and that the Battle of the Frontiers had been lost by France. The period after that, between August 25th and September 5th, a period of two weeks, is known as the Great Retreat, preceding the Battle of the Marne. Now, we don't have enough time to discuss in detail the myriad of battles, attacks and counterattacks, advances and retreats that occurred all along the front from Switzerland to the English Channel in this podcast. Suffice it to say that whatever initial local successes the French had, they were soon met with stiffening German resistance and artillery, and usually within a few days were routed back to their starting positions, or worse. In fact, the situation on the southern flank, far from the battle we are going to talk about, German success stirred in von Molke the thought of a double envelopment that would see the German 6th and 7th armies pushing into France from the south, and turning north to envelop the French First Army, while at the same time the armies in Belgium enveloped the French Fifth Army and the BEF. 
August 24th and 25th were the pivotal days in which Joffe assessed the situation realistically and concluded that Plan 17 needed to be abandoned and a new strategic plan conceived to deal with the reality of the situation bearing down on the French, particularly in Belgium. And it was here where Joffe's imperturbable calm, realism, and mathematical calculation saved France from a disaster such as the one that overtook it in 1940. The French situation in 1940 is discussed in one of our earlier podcasts, Episode 7, The Battle of France. In that war and invasion, once again the German strategy had outfoxed the pre-war planning by the French and saw a breakthrough in the early days of the campaign. France's commander in that war, Maurice Gamelin, and his field army commanders, and the government, panicked and failed to calmly conceive of countermeasures that could have been taken to rescue the situation. That did not happen here, and it is to Joffre's everlasting credit that he never lost his nerve and presence of mind even in the face of a similar unfolding disaster on August the 23rd. The following week preceding the Battle of the Marne was the point of no return for France. Either the damage was repaired and means to resist discovered, or France was doomed to a rapidly accelerating advance and envelopment by three heavily armed German armies from Belgium, while the rest of the German armies held fixed in place the remainder of the French army. And it's here where Joffre and Galliani showed their greatness in the ashes of defeat. But it was not a very good time to be a soldier in the uh, French or British armies. Private Frank Richards of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers recalled, Bread we never saw. A man's daily rations were four army biscuits, a pound tin of bully beef, and a small portion of tea and sugar. We never knew what it was to have our equipment off and even at night when we sometimes got down in a field for an all-night's rest, were not allowed to take it off. Christian de Malay, a, Fr- a French cavalry officer, described similar conditions. The heat was suffocating. The exhausted men, covered with a layer of black dust adherent from sweat, looked like devils. The air was burning. Thirst was intolerable, and there was no possibility of procuring a drop of water. Defeat in the Battle of the Frontiers not only meant a failure to advance and capture territory, but enormous losses. Author David Stevenson, in his book, The History of the First World War, published by Penguin Books in 2005, estimated that by the end of August, the French army had suffered 75,000 dead, of whom uh, 75,000 casualties, no, dead, Um, of whom 27,000 were killed on the 22nd of August alone. French casualties for the first month of the war were 260,000, of which 140,000 occurred during the last four days of the Battle of the Frontiers. 
It was on August 23rd and 24th that Papa Joff admitted to himself and to his government that Plan 17, his plan, had failed. In a terse message to the Minister of War, Messimi, he put it this way, and I'm going to quote, In the north, our army operating between the Sambre, the Meuse, and the British army appears to have suffered checks, of which I do not know the full extent, but which have forced it to retire. One must face facts. Our army corps have not shown on the battlefield those offensive qualities for which we had hoped. We are therefore compelled to resort to the defensive, using our fortresses and great topographical obstacles to enable us to yield as little ground as possible. Our object must be to last out, trying to wear the enemy down and to resume the offensive when the time comes. John Keegan noted in his Illustrated History of the First World War that this memorandum, uh, as doleful as it must have been to read to Messimi, remains one of the great documents of the war. In its few sentences, it sketched out a plan of recovery, even of eventual victory. This was followed on August 25th with his general instruction number two to the French general staff and officers. Quote, Future operations will have as their object to reform on our left a mass capable of resuming the offensive. This will consist of the 4th, 5th, and British armies together with new forces drawn from the Eastern Front while the other armies contain the enemy for as long as possible. This is exactly what did not happen in May 1940, when the French Supreme Commander, Maurice Gamelin, discovered that he had made a mistake, allowing German panzer formations to break through French defensive lines around Sedan. He and nearly the entire French general staff had collapsed in panic and depression, paralyzing recovery in the fateful days when the mistake might have been repaired. Gamelin had been sacked by a panicked and demoralized war minister at the crucial moment, and by the time his successor had taken uh, the time to comprehend the situation, all hope was lost. In 1914, the supreme confidence and calm of this unusual man, Joseph Joffre, bolstered rather than deflated French morale in the government and in the army. Messimi did not sack Joffre, but stuck with him, trusting him to lead the French out of the unfolding, menacing situation in which they found themselves. But there were other measures taken to stiffen French resolve and morale. Joffre sacked the cynical, pessimistic Lanzarac and replaced him as commander of the 5th Army with the fiery Louis Franchet d'Espere. Dozens of other doubting Thomases and pessimists were removed and replaced with hard-edged, grim, and determined leaders like Ferdinand Foch, Robert Nivelle, and Philippe Pétain. Perhaps the biggest impetus to this sorting out from the French high command, however, was the recall of Joseph Galliani from retirement by Messimi, who named him military governor of Paris on August 26th, and placed him in charge of the garrison there, as well as three army corps that Joffre was ordered to provide him, a condition Galliani had demanded when he was asked to return. 
Gallieni had been Joffre's superior during his long career and was one of the few people to whom Joffre could be persuaded to defer. Like himself and the new uh, generals now in command, Gallieni was a man of few words, immense personal courage and resolve. Upon taking command in Paris, now a virtual dictator, his first statement, printed on posters and plastered on all the walls and kiosks, typified his blunt temperament and personality. It said, simply, in French, of course, Army of Paris, Citizens of Paris, the members of the government of the Republic have left Paris to give a new impulse to the national defense. I have received a mandate to defend Paris against the invader. This mandate I shall carry out to the end. Galliani. Galliani's impact and influence over the French army in the days leading to the Battle of the Marne was not merely his rank, although technically subordinate to Joffre. It was his iron will, personality, his intelligence, his logic, and long military experience that made him, in effect, a partner with Joffre in engineering the response that repulsed the German onslaught. The Great Retreat lasted the better part of two weeks as the BEF and the French 4th and 5th Armies pulled back inexorably toward the Seine and the Marne and Paris. Battles were fought that temporarily knocked the Germans off their stride for a day or two, but which inevitably ended in another retreat, another digging in, another battle, and another retreat with the Germans on their heels. The British fought at Lanrancy and Marouet with on August 26th, and then Le Cateau, where the British commander of the Second Corps, uh, General Smith Dorian, lost 8,000 killed wounded and missing, the one where he lost more troops than Wellington did at Waterloo. With that defeat at Le Cateau, the BEF began a headlong retreat to the south, with Sir John French now eyeing the English Channel and escape to England, sort of like what happened in World War II at Dunkirk. Here we should mention the British, as the relationship between the Allies had been fraying for quite some time and would offer Joffre another opportunity to show his quality. Due to the heavy defeats sustained by the French and the British, Sir John French had lost confidence in the French command and strategy. His relationship with the nearest French commander, Langerac, had begun in an uneasy manner and had grown to mutual antipathy. Oddly, in this situation, uh, Sir John actually did speak French, not well, but you know he spoke and comprehended, comprehended it. The um, French generals, Joffre, Galliani, uh, did not speak English, uh, which is kind of unusual in modern uh, day when it's usually the other way around. But in any event, um, French, Sir John, who proved as prone to pessimism uh, and defeatism, and some even say panic, as many of the French generals Joffre had or would sack, was concerned that his army might be destroyed outright in the near future, and dreaded the ignominy and disgrace that he thought was sure to be visited on him by the British government, and for that matter, history. 
Above all, he decided to maintain his freedom of action to bolt and run for the channel ports if things kept going on as they had been. Joffre had become aware of French's growing animosity toward Lanzarac and vice versa, and had followed the now headlong retreat the British were making toward Paris, removing the BEF from cooperating with the French altogether. On the day of the disaster at Le Cateau, Joffre motored over to his headquarters and insisted Lanzarac, still in command at that point, to join them. Lanzarac complained openly about British failures to support and cooperate with him, implying the BEF was a military embarrassment rather than any help. Sir John French, sullen and defensive, denied he had received Joffre's general instruction number two in an attempt to excuse his army's sudden departure from the theater, a claim that was probably not true. Langerac refused to join French and his aide Henry Wilson for lunch afterward. Joffre witnessed for himself then this intolerable situation. He accepted the lunch invitation and maintained his own reasonably cordial relationship with Sir John as the two men dined together. Joffre could not sack French. What he did next, however, saved the alliance and preserved the ability of the allies to resist. You know, and we see this in coalition armies uh, quite a bit in history. We saw this with um, uh, the Austrian Marshal Schwarzenberg at Leipzig, manage, the, managing the relationships between the different national uh, contributors, whether they be the Russians, the you know the Prussians, and the Austrians. In that case, you know Dwight Eisenhower is another good example where he, he, he you know managing the personal relationships between the British and the American generals and Canadian generals you know, was a major a part of his job. And Joff, uh, this falls to Joff at this point as well. With Lancherac, he demanded a counterattack on the German Second Army to give the BEF time to retreat and regroup. Lancherac's complaints and objections were summarily overruled, and as we have seen, he was shortly removed from command. With regard to Sir John, Joff and the French government of President Poincaré appealed to the British government in London. The cabinet authorized the Minister of War, Herbert Lord Kitchener, to intervene. Now, Lord Kitchener is one of the most, at, at that point, the most famous British military personality in the entire empire. He, he is um, at the height of his prestige and career uh, at this point, and is a rather formidable personality uh, to begin with. On September 1st, Kitchener met with the French Prime Minister uh, and the new French Minister of War, Alexandre Millerand, in Paris, together with Sir John French. The liaison officer, Victor Huguet, a French liaison officer, recorded that Kitchener was, quote, calm, balanced, reflective while Sir John was, quote, sour, impetuous, with congested face, sullen and ill-tempered. After a while, Kitchener motioned for French to join him in a separate room. And while no independent account of the meeting exists, after the meeting, Kitchener telegraphed the cabinet in London that the BEF would remain in the line, although taking care not to be outflanked, 
and told French to consider this, quote, an instruction, unquote. French then had a friendly exchange of letters with Joffre after that, and yet in the coming days still dragged his feet with a steady stream of excuses why the BEF could not move up into position to cooperate with the French armies bracing for the final defense of Paris. And speaking of Paris, let's take a glimpse of that. On September 1, an attaché with the American embassy in Paris, Eric Fisher Wood, wrote in his diary, and I'm going to quote, this is September 1, Panic conditions of the most pronounced order exist today. Everyone seems possessed with the single idea of escaping from Paris. A million people must be madly trying to leave at the present moment. There are runs on all the banks. The streets are crowded with hurrying people whose faces wear expressions of nervous fright. The railroad stations are packed with tightly jammed mobs in which people and luggage form one inextricable, suffocating, hopeless jumble. The French government itself packed up and headed for Bordeaux on September 2nd. And that same day, the Paris Stock Exchange closed, and the Bank of France also moved all its key assets to Bordeaux, including gold reserves of around 4 billion francs, or $800 million in contemporary money. The new military of Governor of Paris... General Galliani ordered military engineers to work round the clock to complete entrenchments and other fortifications around the capital. But the city itself was eerily deserted. In the meantime, Joffre, the master logistician, began stripping divisions and whole corps from his armies on the Rhine while insisting that they maintain their defensive positions and created a new field army to the left of the BEF. This would be the 6th Army under the command of General Michel-Joseph Monumi that would eventually comprise four corps of infantry and one cavalry. Another army, the 9th, was created to support the, the hinge point, the 4th Army, uh, around the Ardennes and was placed under the command of Ferdinand Foch. But it was the 6th Army that was the mass to which Joffre had referred in his General Instruction No. 2 that would play a decisive role in the battle and whose existence was unknown to the advancing German army. As the trains buzzed across the breadth of France, shifting troops and equipment west, ever west, toward Paris and then Amiens, the long and lengthening gray arc of the German right wing swung through Belgium and entered France itself. Like a massive game of crack the whip, von Kluck spurred his exhausted army forward on the far, far right as von Bülow and von Hausen turned and pushed forward as well, inexorably it seemed. The Belgian army, retreating toward the English Channel, after the loss and occupation of their fortress and capital at Brussels, crowded around the seaport of Antwerp, largely out of contact with the other Allied armies. Now checked at Mauberge on the border with Belgium on August 24th, the city was besieged and then bypassed by the First Army, 
it would fall on September 7th. Louvain, in Belgium, was conquered and then sacked by rampaging soldiers on August 25th. Arras was shelled and besieged on August 27th after bitter fighting at Vimy Ridge near the city. On August 29th, the French 5th Army attacked von Bulow's II at Saint-Quentin and Guise and momentarily checked the advance, but again at the cost of some 10,000 casualties to 7,000 for the Germans. Nonetheless, the retreat continued on August the 30th. Amiens fell on August 31st. Crayon and Soissons on September 1st. By September 5th, the great cathedral city of Rennes was taken, a mere 120 miles northeast of Paris, a one and a half hour car ride today on the A4. But by then, with the French, British, and Belgian governments holding their breath, Joffre and Galliani were ready. Let's talk about the Germans for a few minutes. How are things going on their side? And things had not been progressing as seamlessly as they appeared on the German side. The personal animosity between Langerac and Sir John French, which Joffre and Lord Kitchener had eventually resolved, was matched on the German side with the distaste and bickering between von Kluck and von Bülow, without similar intervention by Molke. Conservative, cautious von Bülow was increasingly concerned as the great arc wheeled across Belgium of gaps that kept cropping up between his second army and von Kluck's first. The presence of open space between them invited trouble should it be discovered and exploited by the French or British formations ahead. The telegraph wires buzzed back and forth between increasingly irritated generals and their staffs. Von Kluck, on a tight and even relentless timetable, and having the most ground to cover on the far right, chafed and complained at von Bülow's slow pace and frequent halts along the way, followed by orders to von Kluck to re-establish contact and swerve to his left to stay flush. Molke had made von Bülow the commander of both armies for a period of days after the invasion began, making von Kluck, von Kluck his subordinate. When the acrimonious relationship flared into the open, Molke solved the problem not by intervening himself and coordinating the two armies, but by releasing von Kluck on his own. Molke, unlike Joffre, remained far behind the lines at Spa, removed from the hour-to-hour command, which he left to his field commanders, giving them wide latitude. While Joffre literally raced up and down the front, commanding, inspecting, listening, coordinating, insisting, approving, Mulkey remained static and aloof, reserving himself only for the most overarching issues and vague suggestions to his subordinates. This command structure became ever more tenuous and weaker as the armies became farther and farther away and as Mulkey's nerves frayed. Another significant and underreported problem was the insufficiency of the logistical support for the right wing, a force of about one million men, as it marched through Belgium and into France. Due to the presence of the Russian army in the east and the paltry single-field army uh, designated to confront it, the complete defeat of France 
Britain, and Belgium had to be accomplished in 42 days, according to plan. Furthermore, the route of the far-right First Army under von Kluck was something like 400 miles from start to finish, largely on foot. The inadequacy of supply of food, fodder, and materials of war as the campaign progressed became more and more pronounced. German soldiers were increasingly forced to live off the land, forage in a desolated, hostile landscape inadequate for the purpose. The fodder requirement for the First Army alone, with 86,000 horses, was 2 million pounds per day, and so on. As a result, the German army became increasingly deconditioned, debilitated, and less combat effective each day. Horse-drawn artillery, so important to the Germans, gradually fell behind the front-line infantry due to inadequate fodder and horses. Cavalry gradually evaporated as an effective scouting and maneuvering force for the same reason. Infantry became increasingly exhausted and had to expend time foraging and looting. Belgian and French destruction of railroads, bridges, and tunnels meant rail transportation failed. Horse-drawn wagons failed. Ammunition became scarce. Yet there could be no let-up in the rigid schedule of 42 days to destruction. On September 2nd, an officer in the German First Army confided in his diary that, quote, our men are done up. And Julius Kurtigen, a German infantryman, recalled growing discontent in the ranks. And I quote, We had to march on and on. The captain told us we had been ordered to press the fleeing enemy as hard as possible. He was answered by a disapproving murmur from the whole section. For long days and nights, we had been on our legs, had murdered like savages, had had neither opportunity nor possibility to eat or rest, and now they asked us worn-out men to conduct an obstinate pursuit. Thirdly, Germany simply did not have enough troops. On August the 28th, concerned about the Russian invasion of Prussia and panicked reports from the commander of the German 8th Field Army there, von Prittwitz, Molke sent two corps and a cavalry division to reinforce that army before replacing von Prittwitz with Generals Ludendorff and Hindenburg, just before the epic victory over the Russians at the Battle of Tannenberg, which was the subject of our very first podcast. And by the way, when that happened, the, the two corps uh, and cavalry division that uh, Molke had sent uh, hadn't even gotten there yet. So they had no real purpose. Furthermore, at the far edge of the arc of the First Army, there was a huge gap from there to the English Channel. It could not be filled and invited a flanking attack. And the far edge would confront the problem of Paris in its path, armed to the teeth, ringed by fortresses and under martial law with Galliani in charge, pledged to defend it, quote, to the end. Now, Paris in 1914 had a population of about 2,888,000, which is actually larger than its population today. It was the second largest city in Europe after London, with almost a million more people than Berlin or Vienna, the third and fourth largest cities. 
Von Schlieffen had realized the problem that it would pose at the very end of the invasion before the climactic battle he envisioned to end the war. Under no circumstances would it be occupied. It would be besieged and bypassed, that was clear. But to the west or to the east, that was the question. When von Schlieffen and his generals wargamed it, there was no good military solution to the problem. If the First Army bypassed Paris to the west, it would become completely isolated and detached from the rest of the army, and vulnerable to counterattack and even envelopment under the right circumstances. If to the east, a heavily armed Paris, perhaps supplemented by additional field forces, could sally forth and flank the First Army as it passed, or even fall on its exposed rear, cutting it off from its supplies and communications. The issue had never been resolved, and now it loomed large as the German First and Second Armies approached Paris from the north and northeast. Von Kluck, having a nearly unbroken string of victories, driving the BEF and the French Fifth Army before it, decided to shift to the east of Paris, chasing the two retreating armies, and oblivious at first to the mass forming to the west, his right flank, the French Sixth Army. While the BEF had not headed for the coast, French's retreat had essentially removed the BEF from the fighting, while it refitted and licked its wounds from Le Cateau. Von Kluck had lost contact with it and felt it was a non-entity at this point. The French fifth, now under Franchet d'Espere, however, was before him and had been retreating. If he could get around the left flank of the French fifth, the decisive battle would be underway and potentially the destruction of the French army. In any event, Contrary to von Molke's orders to steer west of Paris, von Kluck decided to go east and chase. Von Molke acquiesced. The main theater of operations then in the Battle of the Marne would be, and was, to the east and northeast of Paris. If Paris were the center of a clock face, the battlefields along the Marne and Seine rivers would be in the two and three o'clock positions. The Battle of the Marne was essentially a series of battles and engagements across a wide front rather than a classic single battle like Sedan or Solferino or Gettysburg. Nonetheless, there were two major parts of it. An initial attack by the 6th Army on von Kluck's right flank and rear that touched off a major engagement known as the Battle of the Orc River. That phase of the battle occurred between September 5th and 8th. Its inconclusive outcome generally favored the Germans, again, but left von Bülow's army open to a ripping counterattack commencing on September 9th by the French 5th Army and the BEF. There was drama yet to come. Von Kluck was aware of the potential of the garrison of Paris, at least, to come at his flank and assign a very capable general, Hans von Gronau, and the 4th Reserve Corps to guard against any attack from the west. Galliani, watching from Paris, received reports from his aviators and cavalry scouts that they noticed the southeastern shift of von Kluck's army. In his memoirs, the French general Clergerie recorded Galliani's reaction, and I'm going to quote, 
On September 3rd, the intelligence service, which was working perfectly, stated about the middle of the day that the German columns, after heading straight for Paris, were swerving toward the southeast and seemed to wish to avoid the fortified camp. General Galliani and I then had one of those long conferences which denoted grave events. They usually lasted from two to five minutes at most. The fact is that the military government of Paris did little talking. It acted. The conference reached this conclusion. Quote, if they don't come to us, we'll go to them with all the force we can muster. <clears throat> In the night of September 3rd, knowing that the enemy uh, would have uh, would have to leave only a rear guard on one bank of the Orc, General Galliani decided to march against that rear guard to drive it back with all the weight of... Moruni's army to cut the enemy's communications and take full advantage of his hazardous situation. Immediately, the following order was addressed to General Moruni. Because of the movement of the German armies, which seem to be slipping in before our front to the southeast, I intend to send your army to attack them in the flank, that is to say, in an easterly direction. I will indicate your line of march as soon as I learn that of the British Army, but make your arrangements now so that your troops shall be ready to march this afternoon and to begin a general movement east of the entrenched camp tomorrow. Unfortunately, German intelligence and operations were working also, and on the morning of September 4th, cavalry scouting noted to General von Gronau the presence of French formations across his whole front, forming up to attack the extreme right flank and rear of von Kluck's first army that his reserve corps had been assigned to protect. Von Gronau beat Moruni to the punch and attacked on September 5th, seizing high ground ahead of Moruni's advance and digging in. Mosier describes what happened on September 6th when the bulk of the fighting began between the two armies. Moruni's men now discovered what the survivors of the initial attacks in Belgium had learned. Instead of standing out in the field and blasting away with their rifles, German infantry dug itself in and watched while its heavy artillery massacred the developing attack. The basic strategy of strategic offense, tactical defense, paid off handsomely. The French attack, which was supposed to drive in the German flank, was stopped cold. Von Gronau then promptly pulled back, letting the main French attack be delivered against a, an abandoned position, while his men took up their defenses on a line to the north. Far from outflanking the Germans, all the Allies had actually done was to alert the Germans to the fact that they out intended to outflank them to the west. This attack and the succeeding attacks by the French 6th Army, while tactical failures set in motion a counter-response by von Kluck, who now realized there was another mass of French forces on his, extreme, uh, on his extreme right. He began to rapidly transfer forces to meet this flanking attack, but in doing so, he weakened his own center and neglected a growing gap between his field army and von Bulow's to his left. This gap would slowly yawn open more and more, exposing von Kluck's left flank and von Bulow's right. 
Now was the time for the BEF to fill the gap and coordinate with Franchet d'Esperé's army, but Sir John French still hesitated. On September 5th at 9 o'clock in the morning, Franchet d'Esperé motored to French's headquarters and explained to him the operations plan for his army's offensive the following day. Joffre sped in his motor car to meet French personally, arriving at 2 p.m. when he learned that Franchet d'Esperé's uh, conference with him had failed to convince uh, to get any firm commitment by Sir John French to coordinate, cooperate, and participate in the offensive with the French Fifth Army. When he arrived, Joff had his one emotional moment. Grasping Sir John's hands in his own, Joff insisted that the supreme moment had arrived and that the future of Europe was on the line. He said, quote, I cannot believe the British Army will refuse to do its share in this supreme crisis. The honor of England is at stake. It had its impact. French was an emotional man himself and tried to respond in French, in the French language, that is to say, uh, and just couldn't get the words out. Finally, uh, Sir John told his aide, Henry Wilson, to translate, saying, quote, Damn it, I can't explain. Tell him that all men can do, our fellows will do. The BEF moved forward toward the gap, while von Kluck's army, now completely detached from von Bulow's army, fought with the 6th on its right flank. French 5th Army, on the right flank of the BEF, attacked von Bulow's 2nd Army in the flank at De Morin. It was a day of high emotion. Joffre issued this proclamation to the army, and I'm going to quote, On the eve of the battle on which the future of our country depends, it is important to remind all that there must be no looking back. Every effort must be made to attack and drive back the enemy. Troops which can no longer advance must at all costs keep the ground they've won and die rather than fall back. Under the present circumstances, no weaknesses can be tolerated. The BEF advanced on the 6th through the 8th of September, crossed the Petit Morin River, captured bridges over the Marne, and established a bridgehead 8 kilometers deep. The 5th Army, by the 8th of September, also crossed the Petit Morin, which forced Bulow to withdraw the right flank of the 2nd Army. And by that I mean he, he was forced to stop the forward progress of his own army and on his right flank pull back sort of in a semicircle like an arc to prevent 
the BEF and the 5th Army from, you know, outflanking him and getting around to his rear and possibly destroying his army from the front and from the flank. So he moved to protect himself by pulling back his right flank into, you know, sort of an arc to, to, uh, to prevent himself from being outflanked. Um, the, the next day, the 5th Army recrossed the Marne and the German 1st and 2nd Armies began to retire. The Germans had still hoped to smash the 6th Army between the 6th and the 8th of September. In other words, uh, von Kluck's force thought uh, they could do that. But the 6th Army was reinforced on the night of the 7th and 8th of September by 10,000 French reserve infantry ferried from Paris. This included about 3,000 men from the 7th Division who were transported in a fleet of Paris taxicabs requisitioned by General Galliani. The impact on morale was undeniable. The taxis de la Marne were perceived as the manifestation of the sacred union of the French civilian population and its soldiers at the front, reminiscent of the people in arms who had saved the French Republic in the campaign of 1794, a symbol of unity and national solidarity beyond their strategical role in the battle. It was also the first large-scale use of motorized infantry in battle. A Marne taxicab you can see today at the uh, Army Museum at Les Invalides in Paris. But the real action was taking place at the Deux Morins, where Franchet Desperé's 5th Army pushed back the right flank of Bulow's 2nd Army, making it basically impossible for the Germans to close the 30-mile gap created the day before by Bulow's uh, withdrawal of his right flank and Kluck's uncoordinated conflicting moves. Even worse, after an embarrassing delay, the BEF was finally on the scene, pushing ahead into the gap to the west of the French 5th Army, and meeting no resistance, the British cautiously pushed forward over recently abandoned German positions along the two Morins and reached the southern bank of the Marne by the evening of September 8th. The French 5th Army's success and the arrival of the BEF at the Marne threatened to completely unravel the German line, opening von Kluck's 1st Army to attack from the rear. Back at the German headquarters in Luxembourg, Helmuth von Moltke panicked and apparently suffered a nervous breakdown, losing his grip on events. His subordinates, now in crisis management mode, began to take over, and in the early morning of September 9th, they dispatched a general staff officer, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hench, to tour the front, make an appraisal of the situation, and order a retreat if necessary. The situation was dire. At 2nd Army Headquarters, Bulow said his exhausted troops had been reduced to cinders by three days of hard fighting following weeks of forced marches, and laid the blame on Kluck for failing to protect his flank and generally keeping him in the dark about First Army's movements. Although no records of the meeting were kept, it seems that Bulow and Hench together decided the time had come to make a strategic withdrawal, uh, a move that was later 
harshly criticized by von Kluck, who at that point believed believed he was close to turning the flank of the French 6th Army. And here, that sort of represents von Kluck's um, failure to sort of comprehend the enormous threat that had now developed, because his army was increasingly uh, becoming uh, enveloped, not by the 6th Army that he was fighting, but by the BEF that has moved in behind him, and would soon uh, complete an encirclement and perhaps annihilation of his army if he didn't get out of the uh, trap. And the same for von Bülow, although von Bülow did uh, see the the problem. Um, the BEF turning to its right with the 5th in, in von Bülow's front um, would do the same to the 2nd Army, envelop, um, envelop and surround it. Uh, and if those two armies, you know, sort of were routed or fell, then like dominoes, the 3rd, 4th, and 5th German armies to the uh, east would have been, you know, one after another, similarly enveloped and rolled up. So it was an extremely serious situation, and von Bülow just doesn't, was so aggressive, he just didn't seem to uh, comprehend it at the time or even later. The ferocity of the attacks and stubborn resistance all along the line of French armies, far from the Marne, that prevented German breakthroughs elsewhere, broke the exhausted, advancing Germans, who simply could advance no further. On the 9th of September, Hench reached the First Army's headquarters, met with von Kluck and his chief of staff, and issued orders for the First Army to retreat to the Aisne River. Moltke suffered a nervous breakdown, hearing of the danger and the situation. The German retreat from the 9th to the 13th of September marked the end of the Schlieffen plan. Moltke is reported to have said to the Kaiser, quote, Your Majesty, we have lost the war. Meanwhile, the Allied troops who pursued them north encountered scenes of shocking carnage and devastation. Charles Inman Barnard recalled as follows, and I'm going to quote, We came near to the villages along the road from Meaux to Soissons and found that the trenches dug by the Germans were filled with human corpses in thick serried masses. Quicklime and straw had been thrown over them by the ton. Piles of bodies of men and of horses had been partially cremated in the most rudimentary fashion. The country seemed to be one endless charnel house. The stench of the dead was appalling. When the Germans reached the Aisne, they established advantageous positions on hills overlooking the river and dug in with machine guns and heavy artillery, and the French and British soon did the same. Kittigan remembered the scene at the dawn at dawn on September eleventh, and again I quote Slowly the mist began to disappear, and now we observe the French occupying positions some hundred yards in front of us. They had made themselves new positions during the night exactly as we had done. Immediately firing became lively on both sides. Our opponent left his trench and attempted an attack but our great mass of machine guns literally mowed down his ranks. The French renewed their attack 
again and again. And when at noon we had beaten back eight assaults of that kind, hundreds upon hundreds of dead Frenchmen were covering the ground between our trenches and theirs. So let's talk about the aftermath of the campaign. Sir Winston Churchill once exhorted the British people to supreme sacrifice and resistance to German invasion so that if Britain and its commonwealth last a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. To my mind, the Battle of the Marne was, in modern times, France's finest hour. From the depths of their souls, from Joffre and Galliani at the top, down to the French foot soldiers, in the face of defeat, death, and deprivation, the French army saved France, and France saved Europe from the triumph of perhaps one of the greatest armies ever assembled in history. One of the greatest admirers of French ingenuity and valor was their great adversary, none other than Alexander von Kluck himself. In his memoirs and writings after the war, von Kluck paid tribute to the French leaders and their soldiers. And I'm going to quote, I knew that General Moroni's army, as my acquaintance with it informed me, was incapable of keeping up the fight. On the other hand, I could not deviate from the principle, taught always in all military schools, that a general commanding a fortified place or precinct has no right to take the offensive unless an enemy threatening him from the front. Doubtless only one general was in existence to risk the gravest responsibilities by disregarding this principle. It was my misfortune that Galliani was that general. And what he's saying here is that, you know, traditional doctrine in, in virtually all armies was that when you were in a fortified position like Paris was, you would not take the offensive unless there was an army knocking on your gates right in front of you. But Galliani hadn't done that. When they swerved away from Paris, he took the opportunity to come out of Paris and attack which was not really expected by von Kluck. Again, after the war, in an interview with a Swedish businessman, von Kluck elaborated further. And again, I quote, If you want to know the material reason for our failure, read the newspapers of those days. They will tell you of the lack of ammunition and the failure of our commissariat. All that is exact. But there is another reason which is entirely decisive, for it caused the others to manifest themselves, and that is the capacity of the French private to come back. This quality evades the most careful calculation. That men will stand fast and get killed is a well-known fact. But to suppose that men, half dead, with fatigue and lying, worn out, on the ground, could, when the bugle sounded, seize their guns and attack like demons is a thing which we never thought to see, a possibility which never entered into the calculations of our war colleges. Joffre himself issued a proclamation recognizing in his own way the same thing, the qualities and heroism of the French common soldier. This one was addressed to the 6th Army, 
that had taken such a beating from von Kluck when the battle started. And I quote, The Sixth Army has just sustained during five entire days, without interruption or rest, an engagement against a numerous enemy whose previous successes had raised their morale to a high pitch. The struggle has been a severe one, and the losses from fire, as well as from fatigue due to want of sleep and occasionally of provisions, have surpassed any that have been hitherto imagined. You have supported all this with a valor, a firmness, and an endurance to which no words can possibly give adequate expression. Comrades, your general asked you, for the sake of your country, to do more than your plain duty. Your answer has exceeded his most sanguine expectations. Thanks to you, victory has crowned our colors. Now that you have realized the glorious satisfaction of victory, you will in the future never let it fall from your grasp. As for myself, if I have been able to help, I have been fully compensated by the greatest honor of my long career, namely to have commanded troops such as you are. For all you have done, I thank you with sincerest emotion, because to you I owe that to which my efforts and energy for the past 44 years have been directed, revenge for 1870. My thanks to you, honor to all combatants of the 6th Army, Joff. In the initial aftermath of the battle, both sides thought it was simply the beginning of the end of the war in the West. The British and French armies were in pursuit now as the Germans retired to the heights on the north side of the Aisne and began entrenching and mounting their artillery for defense. There the Franco-British advance ground to a halt. A race for the sea began with entrenching by both sides. As most of you know, it was not the beginning of the end, but the end of the beginning, as Churchill once said. What followed was four years of stalemate and trench warfare in France and Belgium, while Germany and her ally Austria-Hungary turned their attentions to France's ally, Russia. Russia's failure at Tannenberg to defeat the one German army it faced in East Prussia had doomed the Allies and Europe to a long and bloody war. One which was won on the Western Front in 1918. By then, Joffre was no longer France's chief. Ferdinand Foch was. Joffre was relieved in December 1916 after disappointing results in the Battle of the Somme and a new government had come to power in France. Upon his departure, he was given the title Marshal of France, the first time the honor had ever been granted in the history of the Third Republic. Galliani had died in May of 1916, mourned by the French people who knew he had saved Paris and France. As Churchill said of him at the time, quote, he's not thinking only of the local situation around Paris. He thinks for France, and he behaves with the spontaneous confidence of genius in action. Posthumously, he too was made a marshal of France, 
His remains are buried in the Jean Moulin Cemetery in Saint-Raphaël-Var on the Mediterranean coast of France. Von Molke, as we heard, was sacked by the Kaiser on September 14th for poor health after having suffered a nervous breakdown in the last days of the Marne campaign when he realized the massive gamble of the von Schlieffen plan had failed. He wrote his wife that, quote, Things have not gone well. The fighting east of Paris has not gone in our favor, and we shall have to pay for the damage we have done. In his reflections and memoirs, written in Hamburg in November 1914, Helmut von Molke, chief of the German general staff at the outbreak of war in 1914, made quite clear that, quote, our failure to overwhelm France in the first attack was due to England's fast intervention. Further, Molke wrote that his decision to transfer two corps from the German right wing to help counter the Russian invasion of Germany in East Prussia, quote, was a mistake and one that we would pay for at the Marne. But it's a matter of debate whether the failure of the Marne campaign can be placed at Molke's feet. Some critics contend that Molke's weakening of the Schlieffen plan led to German defeat. A number of historians contend that the failure of Alexander von Kluck's first army to keep position with Bulow's second army, thus creating a gap near Paris that was exploited by the French, is a more direct cause than any planning foibles on von Molke's part. <clears throat> the Schlieffen School of military historians disagrees and argues that Molke lost control of the invading armies during the month of August and thus was unable to react when the first battle of the Marne developed in September. While Molke had lost touch with his field commanders, German operational doctrine had always stressed personal initiative on the part of subordinate officers, more so than in other armies. Other historians argue that the multitude of strategic options Molke faced and the danger of the Russian invasion of East Prussia clouded Molke's judgment. In my opinion, his failure to give clear, concise orders to his invading armies, his transfer of the two corps to the Eastern Front, his aloof and distant management of the campaign, were some of the mistakes for which, uh, which resulted in the defeat at the Marne. Molke died in June 1916, just a month after Gallieni, in Berlin, and is buried at the Invaliden Cemetery in Berlin. Alexander von Kluck, toward the end of March 1915, while inspecting an advanced portion of his troops, he was struck by shrapnel, which caused seven wounds and seriously injured his leg. Shortly afterward, he received the Order Pour le Marit, which is the highest uh, honor uh, in German military uh, of German military medals. In October 1916, the military uh, command announced that von Kluck had been placed on half pay in accordance with his request to be allowed to retire. His son, Lieutenant Egon von Kluck, was killed early in 1915. General von Kluck wrote of his participation in the war in the volume entitled uh, Führung und Taten der Este in 1920. His post-war memoirs, The March on Paris and the Battle of the Marne, 
were published in 1920, and Kluck died in Berlin in October 1934. Karl von Bülow was believed by the German public to be responsible for the German failure to capture Paris. Nonetheless, he was promoted to field marshal in January of the following year. After suffering a heart attack two months later, he was allowed to retire in early 1916, living in Berlin until his death in 1922. He, too, is buried in the Invaliden Cemetery in Berlin. Joseph Joffre, on the 1st of April, 1917, the French Prime Minister Ribot asked Joffre to go on a mission to the United States. Uh, five days later, on the 6th of April, the United States Congress declared war on Germany. Joff stayed in Washington for 10 days and addressed both houses of Congress individually. On the 27th of April, he met with the U.S. Army Chief of Staff, Hugh Scott, and his deputy, Tasker Bliss. Joff left a paper arguing for a separate American force, and then on May 4th began a week's tour of the eastern United States. In full view of the press, he waited his turn in a barber shop in St. Louis for a haircut, visited the hometowns of Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses Grant, laid wreaths at the statues of Joan of Arc and Lafayette, and visited West Point. He returned on the 10th of May to find that U.S. authorities agreed with the recommendations in his paper. The 1st U.S. Infantry Division, mainly regulars, was to be sent at the start of June. On the last day of his visit to Washington, um, he was introduced to General John Pershing, who had just been selected to command the American Expeditionary Forces. Joffre told him that he can always, could always count on him for anything in my power. John Eisenhower, the son of the late president and general, writes that Joffre's personality had a profound effect on the course of history, and he became a household name in the United States. Joffre became leader of the Supreme War Council in 1918. When he retired in 1919, he was made a member of the Académie Française. In 1920, Excuse me, uh, he died on the 3rd of January, 1931, in Paris, and was buried on his estate at Louvre-Sienne. His memoirs in two volumes were pu- published posthumously in 1932. In my opinion, the seeds of Germany's destruction lay in its reckless pre-war diplomacy that isolated it and left it without a powerful ally, but of above all, that alienated Britain. The military plan of von Schlieffen that ignored the enormous political cost of invading Belgium, bringing Britain into the war, just about doomed Germany to defeat before the campaign ever began. The amazing thing about the German army and high command was how close they came, nonetheless, to defeating her enemies in the West in the first six weeks of the war. The magnificent calm and courage of Joffre, the genius and alacrity of Galliani, and above all, the heroic courage and sacrifices of the ordinary French soldier against such odds, truly bent the arc of history. <laughs>